James chapter 5. We were in this passage last week, and we're going to kind of park in the same place tonight in the verses uh, we were in last uh, Thursday, because there's more that we want to look at in terms of what James is telling us here. Now, as we talked last time, James in these verses from chapter thir- verse 13 down through 16 has given us a, pres- a prescribed way to gain healing from a physical illness. Any illness a person may have, here's a prescribed way to get perfect healing from that. And there are many churches, both charismatic and otherwise, who have taken these verses and latched on to this and addressed illness in, in the part, on the part of people the way James lays it out here. The only problem with that is, as we saw last week, what James gives us is not for this age. It's not for this church age we're in right now. What he's giving in these, passage, in these verses doctrinally is for those in the tribulation uh, so they can be healed from any illness that might go on, specifically because of some sin they might have committed uh, in their lives during that period of time. That, however, has not stopped folks from doing this exact, these things that James talks about, even though it really isn't for this age. Whenever an illness shows up, they will pursue these, this prescription as the way to address that illness. I've had people ask me over the years if we anoint people with oil if they're ill. I've known of churches that do that. I know churches who have anointing services and so forth, or some person will have an affliction, and they'll come forward at the end of a service, and the people will gather around and anoint them with oil. That practice comes from verse 14. Look at that verse. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The problem is that the, the people who do that in this age ignore the, the context because the context continues in verse 15, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. What he says there is if you do this, as a guaranteed way for that person to be healed. That person, if they come forward and are anointed with oil and they follow this prescription, that person has to be healed. And if they're not healed, then there's a lie in this book. Again, if this passage is doctrinally for this age. Uh, If we do that, according to this, if if we take it as church age doctrine, every time we do that, that person should be healed. And if they're not, there's something wrong with what we did or something wrong with the word of God. Now, notice part of the procedure again in verse 14 is to anoint them uh, with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, Oil in scripture, I'm sure you're aware, is a type of the Holy Spirit. That word anointing that is used there is used both in reference to the Holy Spirit and also in reference to uh, placing oil on somebody. Uh, the word, certainly here, they're anointing with oil. Let me read you Acts 10.38. It says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So there Jesus Christ was anointed with the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost and oil are connected to each other in Scripture. Uh, and that's a reference to the Spirit, Spirit of God coming upon that person who's anointed And again, in this case, providing healing for them because of the Spirit's power. Now, we've never done it here uh, in the the 12 years that I've been pastor here. I would have no problem at all if we had a service where we prayed for somebody who was dealing with an illness and anointed them with oil as a part of that service. I would have a problem with that. However, the purpose of doing that would be not to guarantee that person's recovery. That's not why we're doing it. The purpose would be to demonstrate that we are putting that person's illness into God's hands and demonstrating that any healing that comes, comes from the Holy Spirit of God, and not from the oil or anything else. <laughs> it would be a demonstration to the one who was ill that God is the healer, and the church family is gathering around them, seeking God's guidance and God's power in providing healing to that person. Now, I see nothing biblically wrong with that. Again, if we keep it in the context of which it is, we're not expecting healing to occur because we do that. There's a whole different purpose if we would do that in this age. Otherwise, I see nothing wrong with that. However, Uh, Physical illness, we need to understand something. Physical illness and physical difficulties occur oftentimes for God to get glory. That's why he does it. I'm going to refer you back. Again, you don't need to turn there. John chapter 9, there's a man who was born blind. 
and the disciples asked Jesus Christ, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or his parents who sinned? And Jesus Christ says in verse 3, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. That man was born blind so that God could get the glory from that blindness. He was affected, uh, afflicted rather, by the will of God so God could use that affliction for his glory. As much as we dislike hearing this, and I hate hearing this, it is not always God's will to heal us. And it's not always God's will to remove our affliction from us. And so if we have a prayer service like what James is talking about here and anoint that person in order to see them healed, that service could be going against the very will of God because it may not be God's will to heal them. That might not be his will at all. Any service we would do like that, and again, I'm not planning anything. I'm just saying if we would ever do that, it would be intended to demonstrate that God is in control of the illness and that we're seeking his power from his spirit uh, to help us accept whatever God chooses to do with the illness that is upon that person or upon us. So here are the steps you can take. If you have an illness or affliction, I believe there are biblical steps we can take uh, to address that illness. And I've written these down for you on your outline. The first thing we always do, whatever else we do, is you pray about it. That is the first step you take, and that's just a given. We can also seek a doctor's care if we feel led to do that. Uh, Paul traveled with a doctor. Seeking medical advice uh, and treatment can be within the will of God if God leads in that direction. I've had Christians tell me that it's a demonstration of a lack of faith if you go see a doctor. Paul had a doctor with him all the way through. Uh, so that, that certainly was not Paul's philosophy at all. We can also, if we choose to, ask the church to pray for us and anoint us with oil if it helps get our focus on the right place and to seek his will in that affliction. However, if we do that, I'll say it one more time, we're not doing that for a guaranteed healing. We are doing that to acknowledge who's in charge of that illness. That's why we would do it. And then we must always acknowledge, no matter what we're going through, we must always acknowledge that we live in a sinful, fallen body that is susceptible to illness and affliction that comes simply because we're dust. I had to laugh over the years. My dad would always wonder why he was feeling so badly. Why do I have these illnesses? Why do I have, why can't I, you know, why is my leg hurt? Why is my back hurt? And I'd like to say, Dad, you're 98 years old. <laughs> There's no other reason for it but that. But he never got it through his head that this body gets old and falls apart eventually. And that's just how it goes. And that can happen early in life. It can happen late in life. We live in fallen bodies that things afflict. And that's just part of living in these bodies until we're permanently healed from all of that. Uh, so uh, in all of that, what we have to do is take Paul's stance. And Paul's stance is if God chooses not to heal or chooses not to remove the affliction, we learn him more by do him doing that. And we gain his strength through the need that we have. Paul said, and, and, and Jesus Christ told Paul, I do this for you to learn my grace. My grace is shown through weakness. And so no matter what we go through, if God chooses not to remove it, learn about him through it, learn his grace through it, learn his strength through it, and allow him to use that to make us stronger and more able to serve him in whatever condition we are. Now, with that said, drop down to verse 16. Uh, we didn't read this verse, I don't think, last week. We stopped in verse 15, I believe. We read it, but we really didn't go very far with it. The verse says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, in the context, again, in the doctrinal context, those elders who are coming to uh, heal a uh, place of oil on this person are first to confess their faults to each other. That's the first thing they do in order before they begin this healing. Now, uh, notice the word there, faults. Take note of that word. Uh, the Vatican manuscript from which the uh, uh, Roman Catholic Bible of uh, 1582 was uh, trans translated changes that word faults to sins. 
Uh, it says that, uh, that Roman Catholic version says, confess your sins one to another. And to fall in line with that translation, the New International Version says, therefore confess your sins to each other. And the English Standard Version says, therefore confess your sins one to another. And the New American Standard Bible says, therefore confess your sins to one another. They all say that because they are all based on the same corrupt Vatican manuscript that the Roman Catholic Bible is based in. Even the New King James Version says, confess your trespasses to one another. Uh, people will say, you know, the New King James is just like the original King James. There's no difference. There is a difference. They are influenced by the same manuscripts that produce the New International and the New, the New American Standard and some of those other Bibles. I'm not going to go far into this tonight, but just to say to you folks, there are two lines of manuscripts that those Bibles are produced from. And only one Bible came from this line over here, and that's the King James Bible. All the other ones came from another line of manuscripts that had its origination in the Vatican in Rome. So, that Catholic reading shows up in the Catholic Bible, obviously. It also shows up in all the new versions that have been produced from that same uh, group of manuscripts. And from that reading, we get the Roman Catholic tradition of a person going to a priest to confess their sins. They take that verse, and that's the basis for that entire tradition of the priest being there and the child of God, child of God going to them to confess their sins from one verse. And uh, aside from everything else that we might say about it, the instruction there is not to confess your sins. The instruction there is to confess your faults. And there's a very huge difference in those two things. And we need to be aware every word of God is there for a reason. Every word of God is there because God's trying to make a point and let us see something. So what's a fault? Well, if you follow that word through scripture, we won't do that tonight. You find that a fault is an intrinsic flaw in our nature, an intrinsic, intrinsic flaw in our character. Uh, we see this illustrated in Je- uh, Jeremiah 18.6. The potter's working on the wheel. And in verse 4, God says, And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. That vessel had a mar in it. There was a flaw in it. It was an obvious mistake that was in that thing, an ar- obvious mar in that. You and I are born marred. We are born flawed. We are born with certain tendencies and certain ways that we tend to behave. And whereas sins are more general and more worldwide, Faults can be very individualistic. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 that we are all tempted to sin in common ways. He says that very clearly in that verse. Uh, sins are a very common kind of thing. A fault is not something we are tempted to do. A fault is part of our makeup, something that we are prone to do or a way we are prone to behave because of something buried inside us, wired into us. And so faults can be such things as a tendency to be lazy or a tendency to eat too much or a tendency to make quick judgments about people, or a tendency to talk before we think. Now, if we act on those faults, sin can result. They are inside us. We don't need to act on them. But if we do, oftentimes, sin results. But the result, the sin results from something inside us that made us behave a certain way, a certain flaw inside us. They are personality traits, again, that are part of our wiring. And so in verse 16, that's what these elders are confessing. They are confessing the basic flaws in their character. They're not going through a group of sins. They're saying, here's what I am. I've got this flaw. They are acknowledging that they are unworthy to be used by God in this ministry of healing because of the basic flaws that exist inside them. And that comes as standard equipment to them and to all of us as well. And yet God is using them anyway in the important ministry of providing healing to these who need healed. And so you see, that awareness keeps them from taking pride in what God has allowed them to do. They're not doing the healing, and they're acknowledging that by the fact we are so flawed, we couldn't do the healing. 
If you see the, the common faith healer, you watch any of those guys, uh, they're the healers. God gets very little glory in those things. Uh, they are the star of the show. The spotlight is on them. And when that healing occurs, it's because of what they did. These guys are saying it's not about us at all. And that's why, again, those faith healers and those who take their healing from this passage are totally mixed up because they're not even doing it the right way in terms of their attitude toward it. So what we're saying, seeing here is these elders are aware that God is using them in spite of their flaws, in spite of their difficulties. Now, here's two things that we learned that every wise believer should do as a result of what we're seeing here. The first thing a wise believer does is they make themselves aware of the basic tendencies they have that cause them to sin. Every believer needs to know what your tendencies are that create sin for you. Uh, because you know them. If you think about it, you know what kind of is inside you that takes you in certain directions or causes you to do certain things if you let it go. We need to be aware of those things. Because if those things go unchecked, they can cause us to say things or do things completely outside of God's will, bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ, and harm other believers in the process. They realize that left to themselves, they can do great harm to the cause of Jesus Christ and to the body of Christ if they let those flaws get carried away. The first thing a wise believer does is acknowledges those flaws. The second thing a wise believer does is rejoice in the fact that in spite of those tendencies, God uses them anyway. <laughs> and you need to be aware of that as well. If God has used you anyway in his service, if he's using you now in some work that he's having, he has called you to do, if God is using you in this church some way or outside of this church some way, if God is using you to reach out to people or encourage other believers, let me say to you without hurting your feelings, it has nothing at all to do with you. <laughs> Completely unworthy of doing that work. Completely unworthy of it. The only thing that I bring to the table is a marred vessel a vessel with a flaw, certain tendencies that will make me do things and say things that are not profitable to anybody, including myself. Amen. And God has called us anyway, and God has equipped us anyway, and God has placed us into his service anyway. <laughs> Hold your hand there in James. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We just need to be taken down sometimes and realize it's not anything about us. Because it's oftentimes we kind of get that thought. Uh, we need to make sure we never get too far along in that thing. So God has all kinds of verses in his word to kind of keep us on track with that. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 is one of those. Second Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 6. It says, For God who command, commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. <laughs> That the, te that the excellency of the power of God may, I'm sorry, let me read it again. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, believer, get a hold of that. You have this power in earthen vessels, nothing at all to do with you. God has taken that earthen vessel and through that earthen, earthen vessel, the excellency of the power of God shows through you. In line with what Jeremiah said, we are simply marred vessels, earthen vessels that somehow God in his grace has chosen to use to do the most important work and meaningful work that the world has ever seen. Yeah. And we don't deserve any of it. We're marred. We're flawed. Every time God uses us, it is the wise believer who acknowledges that the work is all of God and none of us. And I would do that every time God uses you. Make sure you make clear to your mind, this is not about me. It's all about him. And we see him using us as just one more indication of his great mercy and his great love and the power that he has that he can use people like you and I. <laughs> That's an amazing thought. 
So this is not, verse 16 is not James' instruction to us to go to some earthly priest and confess our sins to them so that we might be forgiven of those sins. That's not at all what that is about. And what this is telling us rather is every believer needs to realize how marred we are and God is using us anyway. And that's the thought that we want to grab from that. Now notice what James says next. He says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. He says, pray one for another. Now, again, the doctrinal idea there is that they, those in the tribulation are to pray for the healing of each other, and God provides healing for those sins as they pray for each other. But there's a great practical truth here for you and I that I don't want us to miss. Did you know that everybody in this room should be a, should be a prayer warrior? Everybody listening, if you're on tonight, you couldn't get here. You got to need to be a prayer warrior if you know Jesus Christ is Savior. I know we speak about certain saints who are prayer warriors, who seem to have the special ability to get a hold of God and have their prayers answered on the behalf of others. And I think the only thing that distinguishes what we would call a prayer warrior from any other believer is that person has developed such a close relationship with the Lord that their prayers are simply what they naturally do. They're so close to him, they know him so intimately, they just naturally talk to him about whatever goes on. And they become prayer warriors as a result. What that means is, any believer could be a prayer warrior. And for what James says here, every believer should be a prayer warrior. So there are two commands in this verse that we can practically apply to ourselves. First, we are to confess to each other how marred and unworthy we are to be used by God, and yet he uses us. And second, the command is we are to pray for each other and intercede for each other on the behalf of other believers. And to put it another way, we are to be prayer warriors for each other. That's what we're commanded to do. We're called to do that. That's why we have this Thursday night service. That's why this thing goes on. And that's why it is so disappointing to me that many of those in our church don't put the effort into getting here every Thursday night. If you're watching tonight and you could have come and you're not here, you should have been here. You should have been here. That's why it's disappointing that they don't come. Uh, we, are to call, we are called to pray for each other. And I realize you can do that at home on your own time. And we should do that, obviously, for sure. But there's something special about meeting corporately and hearing requests that are new and fresh and interceding on behalf of those people making those requests right here and right now together as a body of Christ. There's something about that you just can't get anywhere else. Amen. That's why God has called us to meet together. And it's my conviction that until, no, until everybody stops showing up for this service, we're always going to have this prayer service. If two people show up, we're going to have a prayer service. <laughs> Until nobody shows up, then we won't. But until then, we're going to do it because I believe that this service is that important. I think this is probably one of the most important services of the week. And I mean that. I'm not just saying that to get people here. I mean that. And I don't understand why it's the least attended when it's the most important. But then that's human nature, I guess. We are to intercede for each other at the throne of God. Uh, we obey that command personally. We obey that command corporately. We are to develop our relationship with the Lord to such an extent that when we appear before that throne, heaven takes notice and heaven pays attention because you just know God that closely. And we don't draw close to the Lord for our own benefit only, folks. We draw close to the Lord for the benefit of others as well. So our relationship is good enough and we pray God hears us. Amen. Now, God made a command. He says, pray one for another that you may be healed. And then he gives us a promise based on that command. And that's what I want to spend our time on tonight. He says, uh, in in seed for each other, pray for one another, and then a promise goes along with that to help us along with that uh, command that he's given us. So I would, could spend weeks on the rest of verse 16. I'm not going to do that, obviously. We're going to spend the rest of our time on it tonight, though. The last 
sentence there in verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now look at that. Just, just, just take a look at that for a second. God says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There's a promise there. There's a promise there. Now, with most of God's promises in the word of God, most of God's promises are conditional. And by that, I mean there's certain things we have to do in order for God to fulfill the promise that he's given to us. The promise is not a blank check. It becomes a blank check once we fulfill the requirements. I liken it to going to the bank and trying to cash a check when you haven't put anything in. They're not going to cash that check. You haven't put anything in the account yet to get the check cashed. Well, in the same way, some of God's promises are blank checks once you invest what you need to invest to make it happen. And once you do that, then God fulfills that promise in ways that you can't believe after you've made the investment. So let's look at the conditions first. The first condition, it says there, the effectual, the effectual fervent prayer, the effectual. That word is really an old English derivative of our common word effective. And by the way, you don't need to change God's word to see that. I just look at it in its context and the meaning is clear. That word is used five times in the New Testament. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Go back just a few pages Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and look at just one of the times when this word is used uh, in the word of God, in addition to what we see here in James. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I'll look at verse 8. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, here's what Paul says. Paul says, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. In other words, God has opened a door for Paul in his ministry, and there's a great deal to be accomplished by Paul walking through that door. A great effect can be had as Paul pursues the door that God has opened to him. So what that word means is, from all the context, is producing or capable of producing a result. In Sabaka's translation, it means praying, expecting something to happen. Praying, expecting God to answer. Praying, understanding who it is that we're talking to, and understanding he is capable of doing whatever you need for him to do. And I know these are basic truths, but we're going to go through them, even though they're simple. I don't want us to miss them. Uh, Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And let's just go back to basics here for a second. Give us a foundation of what James is saying to us. Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 20. One of the great verses in the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And this is one of those verses you could talk about it for years and never get to the bottom of it. That verse is now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Now, I can't expound that to you. I don't know how to even to start with that. He says God can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. So I can't conjure up the thought. I can't make the request. It's too big for me to do. And even if I could, uh, what God would do with that thing is exceeding abundantly, beyond abundantly, uh, beyond anything that I could possibly imagine. (laughs) That's when we pray, folks, please hear me. When we pray, we are speaking to the God of the universe. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter one, verse two, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Amen. You see everything holding together tonight? It's God's words that make that happen. God is speaking the word and keeping all things together. And if God doesn't speak the word, poof, <laughs> they all separate, they all fly apart. 
That's the God that we serve. That's the God you pray to. But when you pray, we are speaking to the one who maintains everything that we see and things that we cannot see simply by saying that it should be so, just by making the statement. There is nothing that we can ask God for that he cannot do. There is nothing that we can ask God for that goes outside his power. God is not limited in any way. Now, James chapter 5, verse 16, do you see why our prayer is to be effectual? Why is to be effective? Do you see why we pray expecting that our prayers can accomplish whatever it is that we're asking God for? It's because the one that we are praying to can do it all and can do it all without even breaking a sweat. If God sweats and he doesn't sweat, you know what I mean. (laughs) Every prayer you pray is capable of producing the exact result that you are seeking and above and beyond the result you're seeking. Exceeding abundantly above what you might ask or think. Every prayer is capable of doing that. Because every prayer that we address is going to the one who is all-powerful. And so first condition, we pray expecting a result. The next word gives us the next condition, effectual, fervent prayer. That's a uh, a middle English word with a Latin root that means boiling. It means to be very hot or glowing. In the context, the word means passionate or vehement. I want you to go just a couple of pages over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, you'll see this word used again in verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. It says there, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The fervent heat that he's talking about there is the kind of heat that God will use to melt the entire universe. (laughs) Fervent heat. That's the kind of prayer God is seeking from us. He's seeking that kind of fervency in our prayer. God wants a prayer from us that is boiling. God wants a prayer from us that is on fire. God wants a prayer from us that is, that it, in which the passion is unmistakable. I will confess to you myself, maybe this is true of you as well. I'll just speak for myself. I know me. I know oftentimes my prayers are routine. I pray because I'm supposed to pray. I pray because I want to pray. But I go through the motions of the prayer time so I can move on with my day and get to other things. Now, God hears those prayers. Because my heart is right, God hears them. God will hear any word that a child of God speaks to him. We all know the difference, however, between when a speaker gives a normal speech and when a speaker gives a speech that's delivered with passion. You know the difference between a speaker or a preacher, perhaps, that has good information and who speaks well but gives no life to what they say as opposed to a speaker who is impassioned, who believes in what they're talking about, and who says that whatever they're saying with conviction. You are much more likely to be influenced by somebody who speaks with passion. You may have your mind changed by somebody who speaks with passion. They may get you to do things that aren't even the right things by speaking with passion because of the influence that comes with that. Well, you see, that's what God is talking about here. Uh, God says, I respond differently to the believer who prays with passion. I respond differently to the believer who who prays with conviction, who prays with determination. God responds differently depending upon the heart of the person that comes with the prayer that they send up. And the idea is not that we conjure up emotion so God will hear us. Rather, the idea is we come to God so burdened, we come to God so needy, we come to God so, so much desiring his intervention that our prayer has such a passion to it, has such a desperation to it, that God pays attention to that prayer in an even greater way than a normal prayer. Now, that's all I can tell you about that. I don't know how God does all that. I don't know how he sorts all that out. I can't give you that. All I can tell you is God responds to a fervent prayer. 
And that means God responds to routine prayers routinely, and God responds to passionate prayers passionately. <laughs> and that's all I know. Whatever attitude we come with, apparently, is the attitude God responds with. If I don't value my time with God, then God is not going to value his time with me. <laughs> it creates a natural distance between me and God if I don't come to that time in a passionate way. And I'm putting this in human terms because that's the only way I can explain it. I guess I know it's not sufficient, but that's the best way that I can do it. So the condition to this promise, number two, is we come in prayer, understanding the power of the one that we are coming to, and we come with a passion that communicates to him just how much our prayer to him means, just how much we want to see an answer to this prayer, just how much how concerned we are with whatever it is we're bringing to him. And God responds more to the attitude that we bring than he does to the words that we use. I have talked to folks who, who have difficulty praying out loud because they don't know what words to say. God couldn't care less. God couldn't care less. I'll tell you, some of my most passionate prayers have been prayers I never said a word. It was just the Spirit of God in me talking to the Spirit of God who's there and communicating in that way. It's not the words that matter, folks. It doesn't have to be this glowing, flowery prayer. It's a prayer with a heart. That's what God honors. And so the attitude is pray fervently, uh, pray with passion. That's the second condition. Here's the third condition. A few words farther down. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man check that word righteous now if you've been saved very long you have read god's word i'm sure and you know that the word righteous is appears all through the word of god and sometimes we get so familiar with these things that kind of dilutes the meaning of them i want to go back to basis again for a moment if i could that word righteous has the word right in it <laughs> so at the very base that word has to do with being and doing what is right now there's two applications of the word of god for that one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He made himself to be sin so that I could be uh, righteous, so I could have God's righteousness. That verse says, although I'm a sinner, when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. Now, I, don't, I can't explain that to you either, but that's how it goes. <laughs> when God looks at me, what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because, you see, when I got saved, I was placed into Christ's body. So when God looks at me, he can't see me because Jesus Christ is all around me. What he sees is Jesus Christ. And so my standing before God is, I stand before God as righteous, and I will always stand before God as righteous because I will always be in him. And therefore, God will always see me in that way. That's our standing, our righteous standing. However, there's another way to see that thing, uh, and that is the word used in a practical application. My daily walk can either be righteous or my daily walk can be evil and wicked, depending on the, upon the choices I make during that day. Uh, we're in the book of Job on Sunday mornings. Job chapter 1, verse 1, uh, God describes Job in this way. A man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. Job was upright. Job was righteous. Not in his standing. That's not what it's talking about there. He, is, he was righteous because he feared God and because he avoided and despised evil. So I can be righteous or unrighteous in my daily walk, depending upon the moral and ethical choices I make during that day. What I find here in James is that God responds to the prayers of that one who is righteous in their daily walk. That counts to God. What we find here is that God responds to the prayers of that person who's righteous in their attitude and in their walk before God. God responds to that one who, in Job's words, fears God and eschews evil. Now, what 
James is saying here goes along with what David and Isaiah both said. I'll read you, uh, Psalm 66, verse 18. David says this, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I've got sin in my heart, God's not going to hear my prayer because I've brought sin into the picture. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid him fa- his face from you, that he will not hear. I've got sin, that sin blocks my fellowship with God, that sin blocks my communication with God, and that verse says God will not hear me with that sin there. He will not hear me. So even though I often don't, God takes my sin very, very seriously. God takes my sin so seriously that if I come to him in prayer with that sin on me, he will refuse to hear my prayer. He won't hear me because I show no regard for the standard God has set as far as my behavior. Now, here's the way I can think about this thing. This is a very basic Sabaka illustration. If somebody was out cleaning out my sewer system all day and then came into my house and said, you know, I want to cook a meal for you. Didn't wash his hands, didn't wash his clothes, didn't wash anything, just walked in and said, now I want to cook for you. Uh, I wouldn't let him cook. <laughs> you, you may. I wouldn't do it. Uh, that's why we don't come to a holy God with the filth of the world all over us. You play in the sewer all day of the world and then say, okay, Lord, I want to talk to you <laughs> with the filth of the world all over you. And God says, no, I think I'll pass on this. Take care of your sin first and then come back and see me. God takes heed to the prayer of a clean person. God listens to the prayer of a clean person. God listens to those who respect him enough to follow his requirements that he's laid down for us. And so in this regard, to have prayers answered, we do two things. First of all, we commit ourselves to follow the holy standard God has set with dedication and resolve and determination as much as we are fleshly able to do that. That's number one. And number two, we begin every prayer by naming our sins that we did commit and confessing those sins to him. Uh, John says in 1 John 1, 9, uh, if we confess our sins, uh, plural, not your sin, not saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. No, that's not what John's saying. John says, confess your sins. Lord, I did that, and I did that, and I said that, and I thought that, and I thought that about that person, and I judged that. That's what God wants to hear. Not just, Lord, I sinned today, please forgive me. That's a cop-out. That's you avoiding having to name them. (laughs) John says, God says, name the sin. When you get there, name them to me. Let me know that you really know what I'm talking about. And once I confess those sins and resolve them by asking his forgiveness for them, then the door of heaven opens and God is intent on hearing every word that I speak. And with all that said, now we come to the promise. Look at the verse again. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, watch it, availeth much. Availeth much. A prayer sent to God in that way doesn't just accomplish a little. A prayer sent to God in that way accomplishes much. That prayer accomplishes beyond what we could ever ask or think. (laughs) That's what happens. Because of God's power, he has every resource of heaven available to us. Everything available on earth is available to him as well. Everything is under his control. And when I pray as James tells me to, I get much, 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 a thousand more muches, more than I could ever ask for. (laughs) If I come to him in that way. You say, God doesn't answer my prayers. Well, we we sometimes look for the wrong place for the answer. But oftentimes God doesn't answer our prayers because we're not doing the way God called us to. We're not following the prescription, and therefore God doesn't answer, or doesn't answer the way we would probe, or doesn't answer as much as we'd like him to. You see, when we ask God for something, if I bring a need to God, and I do it with these conditions met, 
God goes beyond our request. You know what? This is going to surprise you. When you pray to God, you don't know what's best. <laughs> now, you think you do. And so you say, God, God, here's what I want. And God says, nah, that's not really what you want. I mean, you may think that's what you want. I've got something so much better for you. And so when we pray to God like that, with those conditions met, God doesn't answer what we're asking for. God goes beyond what we're asking for. God says, I say, Lord, I want this. And God says, I'll give you that. I'm also going to give you all this too. <laughs> that's how it works, you see, because once you pray in that way, that prayer availeth much. And God responds to us in ways we never thought possible. Now, I know we know all this. I'm sure you've heard this many, many times. We're going to re rehearse some of this again next week for you before we wrap this up. But here's the reminder, folks. If I come to God following his guidelines, unlimited resources of heaven are available to me. It's all right there. It's all there. For, it's like low-hanging fruit. <laughs> Just pick it off. If you come to God in that way. You'd be amazed what God wants to do if we just follow his guidelines and do what he calls us to do and pray the way he wants us to pray. And so I pray for others in that way. I pray for myself in that way. And then what I do is I simply wait in faith. Lord, I have fulfilled all the requirements. I've met all the conditions. I presented my needs to you, my concerns to you. And now, Lord, I'm just going to wait on you. And when I wait on him, all of heaven moves so that although I deserve none of it, I receive answers to what I prayed for. Believe or listen to me. If you do those three conditions, your prayer will be answered. Now, maybe not in any way that you thought, and maybe not in the direction you were looking for, but I guarantee you, based on, not upon what I say, upon what the Word of God says, if you fulfill those conditions, God will answer your prayers. Isn't it great to be a child of God? <laughs> Nobody on earth can claim that except you and I as children of God. Nobody else has that privilege. I know you see those folks in foreign countries down on their knees praying to some idol or praying to some temple, and they think somehow that's going to do it. Nothing's happening there because they're not fulfilling the requirements. If you fulfill the requirements, you've got the entire resource of heaven available to you. God will answer your prayer, and God, the God of the universe will hear and respond to every word you say. What a great thing to be a child of God. <laughs> Let's stand.